This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's PJ Connolly speaks with Neil Spackman, co-founder and CEO of Regenerative Resources Co. Well, thank you so much, Neil, for coming on and, and talking with us. Um, give just a quick background um, of yourself and then how you got into the work that you do, and then maybe yeah. a little bit about your first project. So I, my background in this is, and the, and the way I got into it are kind of the same thing. I did my undergrad work in Middle East Studies in Arabic and Economics. And that wasn't, I was really interested in both of those things, but I took a job immediately out of undergrad in Arabic media analysis, where I would read uh, newspapers and watch news shows coming out of the Middle East and then write reports on current events for the U.S. government. And I really hated it. Like, it was interesting, but but I was in a cubicle, and my passion was sustainability in food systems and in the built environment. And so I would read about that stuff a lot. And through through my network, someone came to me eventually and said, hey, I know you're really into this stuff. I'm part of a project where we're trying to build a green village uh, south of Mecca and essentially to create a self-sustaining community in a place where uh, they'd had 70 years of really serious desertification. Uh, most of the people, almost all of the people were living on welfare and there was this rural to urban flight that was starting to happen because the traditional way of life was collapsing. People couldn't maintain what was a Bedouin culture anymore. And so this project did deal with things like infrastructure, education, public health, um, environment, economic development. And my particular role in this was to be the person on the ground. Um, I lived with these tribes of Bedouin for a few years and worked with them overall for about eight and a half years. And I worked with them to design and build a system that would restore ecological function to their landscape and at the same time allow them to build an economy based off of that design. No, it's just super interesting. I, I, I'm curious, and continue on, but I'm curious um, after this if we could dive more into um, just how the economic stability um, and what specifically was like producing income there for these people mm-hmm. and how you're able to then reinvest that back into the community and specifically kind of what that model looks like, how those cash flows work there. So the one thing that you've got to understand is that these people were still culturally nomadic, if not nomadic in practice anymore. Most of them stopped being nomads in the 1990s and the early 2000s. And that was because the land couldn't support their animals anymore. 
And this is this is a global pattern where, as indigenous land management systems fail, um, those peoples eventually have to turn to unsustainable practices to try to to maintain a standard of living and to survive. And so there's a there's this really common pattern where ecological degradation and rural poverty are cycling between each other and making each other worse, right? So for, for the folks I worked with, they were, because they couldn't graze their animals on grasses anymore uh, throughout the year, they started cutting down trees so that they could sell the wood or sell the charcoal that they made for cash, and then they would use that cash to buy feed for their animals. And over time, if you don't have grass anymore, then you don't have trees anymore, you've just got massive desertification in place. And so what the approach that we had was, well, can we create a system where we are tying ecological function back into rural wealth? Can we change the land's productivity back so that grasses do grow again and trees are growing again? And can we design this in a way where not only do we preserve the people's you know, nomadic and pastoral heritage, but can we build some resilience into that through good design? And we we were never at a scale big enough with our system that we could go commercial with it. What we did was we trialed um, around 12 species of trees and, and built out a system on a 100-acre prototype. Um, so we had a 100-acre watershed that included the mountains, the valley that would flood every time it rained, and a little bit of floodplain. And so we said, okay, this is a this land unit is a geographic fractal of the entire region's geography, right? Because we had an entire watershed, and all the watersheds in the entire region follow more or less the same dendritic pattern. And so we said, okay, we know geographically and ecologically if we succeed on this hundred-acre site of transforming it from this desertified and degraded landscape into a functioning ecology, um, producing multiple sets of goods and allowing for the restoration of sustainable grazing. We know that we can expand that ecologically uh, because it is a geographic fractal. Out of the 12 species that we trialed, uh, we, we cut irrigation to our entire system in 2016 and then essentially left it alone. And there was no rain for two years. There was literally no water on my system for about two years. And out of those 12 species we trialed, four species survived and continued producing. Um, four species of tree survived and continued producing despite that kind of austere regime on that landscape. And so now what we have is a living prototype that could lead to the reforestation of millions of uh, desert hectares um, in a way that would allow people to restore indigenous grazing practices and have a set of tree crops to go along with that for some economic resilience. And what was actually producing there was a, uh, uh, there were two native trees we had that did really well, um, a third kind of support native tree that was a nitrogen fixer and had a really important ecological function to play in that and then a, a tree from Mexico that ended up doing really well. And those were 
the things that they couldn't produce were um, inputs for cosmetics, cooking oils, um, resins, incense, wood, uh, honey, and a couple of food products as well. The entire thing also would have dramatically increased the amount of grasses available for grazing by catching that water out of the floods. And so it was it, it was a functioning agroecology where we transformed the desert into something more akin to a savanna. Um, and just that land's ability to support life, to produce, um, was fundamentally altered because of how we interacted with uh, the hydrology and the geography of the place and, and the kind of culture-conscious design that we had on there. Wow. That is... That's incredible. That is just so inspiring. Um, I know to a lot of people and um, I was curious about, so the products that are created um, mm -hmm. out of this region, where are they then sold primarily? For that, for that. So on that particular site, we never went commercial. All we did was we proved that it was possible to do and proved what could be grown and would, and that you could do commercial products with. Um, and we had an eye with that to local markets primarily uh, because we were 45 minutes away from Mecca, right? And Mecca gets the Hajj every year. And the, the, economy, the economy around Mecca has been focused on Hajj, you know, ever since Islam really started. And um, so it's been it's been a 1600 year cycle of economic development around Hodge, and so those were the markets we intended to sell into. Um, but once it had a once it expands, assuming that they continue with it, once it expands, um, there will be products that they can export. In uh, and, and in particular, I'm thinking of the, there's a moringa tree that's native to the Middle East. And, and probably a lot of your audience has heard of Moringa. Um, most of the Moringa globally is comes from an Indian species that's subtropical and, and can handle dry land, but can't handle the sort of climate that we had in Saudi Arabia. But there is a Moringa species native to the Sinai Peninsula and to Yemen that grew there extremely well. And without without any inputs, we, we use no fertilizers, um, it has no known pests, and we didn't irrigate them, and they still produced even after two years with no water. And there's um, lots of polyphenols in the products that come off of this. The moringa oil is quite expensive and used as cosmetics. Um, the you cold press the seeds, and then you've got a really valuable oil and animal fodder left over. I'm going to jump from here in this project and everything that you're doing. It, it seems like it served as quite the template for what you're doing now, or at least very um, as the inspiration for what you're doing now. So I, I was wondering if you could explain how you made the jump then from this project in Saudi Arabia to your mm -hmm. new company that you have started uh, called Regenerative Resources Co. Uh, so I left Alabama the middle of 2018. Uh, because we were we were stuck in the politics of trying to expand. The governor of Mecca had promised us a, or promised to support us in getting a a 5,000 acre site to develop, where we would have gone commercial with it, but it needed the sign off of 
a double-digit number of ministries for us to be able to do that. Um, and it just got stuck in politics. Starting in 2016 or 2017, we were going through this rigmarole of trying to get things approved. And during that process, we were kind of stuck. Like, we couldn't expand onto a larger land base. Um, we weren't producing enough on our prototype side to sell. And so I I said to the rest of the folks in the project, I said, look, as long as we're stuck in politics, I'm not any I'm not of any use. Um, but what I did decide to do was I said, okay, we know we can do this ecologically. We know that we can do this in a way that's culturally germane and applicable. What we didn't have on our team was experience in turning it into an enterprise. And so I said, I'm going back to school. And I went and did Stanford's MSX program, which is essentially, um, it's grown out of the Sloan Fellowship program, but it's a one-year business program at Stanford. Um, And so I said, okay, I'm going to learn and figure out how do I turn this stuff into into a business so that it can self-scale. And while I was at Stanford, I was introduced to the people who are now my partners. Um, through a contact at what's called the Tomcat Center for Sustainable Energy. And that's a center at Stanford that was um, funded by Tom Steyer, who just dropped out of the Democratic presidential race, and his wife, Kat Taylor. And it's one of Stanford's centers that focuses on sustainability. They don't tend to focus on land and water so much as energy, um, but I spent some time there. They awarded me a grant to go and start a business around dryland agroforestry. And while and while I was there, someone at the Tomcat Center introduced me to a fellow named Ned Doherty, who ran a project in Eritrea where they took a desert coast and pumped in seawater onto the coast to transform a degraded coastline into a mangrove wetland. And then they managed that wetland to produce uh, aquacultures, particularly shrimp and tilapia in that particular project. But they were also growing halophyte. And the Eritrea project is a, a really interesting test case, and it was actually too successful. Um, they ran that from 1999 to 2004, and they were exporting shrimp to Europe. They were profitable. And uh, the army of Eritrea showed up one day and they said, you've got 24 hours to get out. And uh, thank you very much. And so their their project was nationalized. And they, the people involved in that project, my understanding is they all kind of went their own way and, and licked their wounds and tried to get back on their feet. And I was looking in Mexico to do a mangrove agroforestry, they've been looking at land in Mexico kind of to recreate what was done in Eritrea, but do the the next iteration. And we just looked at each other when we met. We looked at what we had built and we said, this is, this is a match made in heaven. Um, and so we incorporated last August as regenerative resources, and we've been uh, building the foundation to launch a site where Essentially, what the seawater system does is really fascinating because it's when you convert a, a desert into a mangrove forest, 
What it does is it intercepts water coming down the watershed that would otherwise run into the ocean, and it creates new freshwater sources. And these are called freshwater lenses. It's called the lens because it's actually rounded underground and it sits on top of a seawater layer. And what that does is it means that uphill of their seawater system, my dry land agroforestry can just be glued uphill of it. And so now we're not just restricted to coastline, but the seawater system, we can actually develop entire watersheds um, in regenerative ways, both to recreate new rural economies that may be based on a degraded landscape, but also to restore ecological function to these degraded landscapes. And when you're looking at entire watersheds instead of just a coast, or when you're including a coastline and not just, you know, what's inland in the desert, the the environmental effects of that are are astounding. I mean in their in their Atreya project they saw they had twenty five species of bird when they started and over two hundred and fifty species of birds when they were done four years later. When they were kicked out four years later. Um in my site in Saudi Arabia, we had uh, we started with one species of mushroom when it would rain. We had five species of mushrooms when we were done. We saw an explosion in the insect life, bird life, lizards, and it's you know the increase in biodiversity, the creation of soil, uh, the fact that we have an agricultural system that actually increases water resources. Right, that's 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 a mind-blowing thing, given that agriculture consumes 80% of our fresh water. Right, out of all of human use of fresh water, agriculture is 80%, and this is an agriculture that actually increases water resources. Uh, the the byproducts of this kind of system are just astounding in terms of the impact um, environmentally, and in terms of the impact economically, because we're taking a a severely degraded resource, uh, one that where other people don't see any value in it because it's um, you know overly salty. It's not productive. There's nothing living there, and you can't take it. You can't apply a conventional pattern of production to those kinds of landscapes and expect to get anything out of it. So it's um, I, I'm really excited to be building this. Let's just put it that way. Report is sponsored this week by Urban Logistics Advisory Services, a New York State corporation that provides lithium-ion engineered products and solutions, multi-suite engineering, and environmental services. For more information, visit ulasinc.com. I, I wanted to ask two questions, um, but then I yeah. want to jump back into um, what's going on with Regenerative Resources Co. But um, what do you see as the biggest sustainability mm-hmm. challenge that we have to take on during 2020? Sustainability is about how we produce and consume and dispose of all the byproducts of that system. And then you've got, you know, the energy side and the transportation side and the and all sorts of things. But I actually think the biggest challenge we have is in is in educating people. 
um, and helping people to understand what the real issues are. And, and so, for example, right now, the dominant narrative about food and sustainability is this plants versus meat argument. Um, and there are some competing narratives with that, but the plant versus meat framing of food and sustainability actually obfuscates the issues more than it clarifies them. And so we have we have some we have some real dominant narratives that need to be clarified and that people need to learn about so that the choices we make are better informed. And then the other part I think is anyway, this is not an answer to the question because I can't limit it down to one. But the you know, governance is a big deal. But markets I I tend to think that governments are lagging institutions. They are not innovating institutions by and large. And it has to be it has to be companies, it has to be businesses, it has to be people that lead the way on this and governments will follow. Um is is how I think we get towards a, a more sustainable society. But it starts with uh people being aware and people knowing and, and being educated about how things actually function. And then as a follow-up, I guess, to more of your work and, and what you do day-to-day, -day, what do you see as the biggest challenge of your day-to-day -day work in sustainability? So it's actually the same answer. Is For me, it's my biggest challenge right now, given where we are at Regenerative Resources, is, I have, is educating, um, whether it's educating people who might be investors Right, or whether it's educating people who might be our clients or our consumers is um we we are really on the bleeding edge of regenerative agriculture, and even though Whole Foods magazine said regenerative agriculture is the biggest food trend of twenty twenty, most people still don't really know what that is, and some do, and the people who tend to tend to be very supportive, but when i'm when I'm talking to potential investors, I, I can't pitch before I'm educating. Um, and it doesn't, I don't want to say that it gets in the way, but it takes a lot of time because we're, we're dealing with, with a tremendous amount of complexity. Um, we are not a kind of business that has figured out, oh, you know what, if we built this one widget, you know, it would make 3 million people's lives better and they would pay for it. So let's go out, build the widget and start marketing right it's not that's not the kind of business we are we're dealing with a tremendous amount of complexity um that i think our capacity to manage that complexity is actually one of our comparative advantages but it slows things down in terms of um educating potential clients and potential funders yeah yeah i can totally see that i mean as as being in this new space, you know, right on the edge, as you say, um, it's got to be a huge part of, of the pitch of the relationship of the, the building of the entire uh, business ecosystem there. Um, yep. So I guess I was wondering, um, Regenerative Resources Co. Albeda Project, how do we get more of these things going? How, how do we fund more of these awesome projects? I think this is, this is a really great question because I, 
I'm well connected with people who tend to be focused on regen ag. Um, but what I'm seeing is that there are funders looking for projects and there are projects looking for money, but they're having a hard time meeting in the middle because they don't actually know each other that well. Um, and so there, there's got to be creativity coming from both sides of that equation to be able to meet in the middle. And from from people from people who are land and water managers like myself, that means coming up with models that go beyond something like conservation and ecological restoration to something that actually can be commercially successful while still meeting the ecological and social um, objectives that we have, right? And so. I, Regenerative Resources Co. could very well have been a nonprofit. Um, we certainly have a lot of objectives that would fit within the nonprofit world. But the weakness in that is that the total amount of money available to nonprofits is in the billions of dollars. The total amount of money available for investment, if you can make something investable, is in the trillions of dollars. And given the scale of the problems that we're trying to solve, I'd much rather go after the trillions than the billions. Um, and I'd rather have a model that's self-sustaining financially rather than a model that requires me to, to do a gala every year so that I can ask people for money. And so I think there has to, I'm a big believer in entrepreneurship, clearly, because I went to business, I went to business school because I said, to myself, the only way we're ever going to be able to attack the scale of this problem is if we can make it financially successful. And so I think there has to be some creativity from our side as land and water managers and people interested in environmental impact in, cre in designing systems that are profitable. And I think from the other side of things, from the investor side of things, there does have to be um, some willingness to adopt models um, that are willing to take on the kind of complexity we're dealing with um, and that are willing to take a, a different a different look at things rather than just, you know, what's the IRR, what's our ROI. And it, it certainly has to meet a certain threshold there. Um, but at the same time, the things that we're doing affect everybody. It's going to affect everybody, and not just every all people. We've we've got the capacity to solve massive problems related to biodiversity and habitat loss, water, soil, carbon, climate, rural poverty, rural urban flight, um, and that's that's something that I think is worthwhile to a lot of people, even if it doesn't match a typical investment scheme. I totally agree. That is, you're speaking the right language here. And I think a lot of <laughs> people in this, I think a lot of people in, in a lot of people in my um, MBA cohort would very much resonate with, with that message. And so I guess I had a question about maybe some of us coming from more of a traditional business background or maybe from the finance world or in this mm -hmm. MBA um, course what would you recommend that we do in order to make ourselves useful, valuable, learn more about the land and water managers world? 
where would you direct us? What would you say that we should be doing right now in order to, I guess, make that transition, those connections easier between the two worlds? That's a beautiful question. Um, I don't know that I have a clear-cut answer for you. I do know that there is, no, no matter what you're good at and what you love about the business world, there is a need for you in building these types of businesses that I'm trying to build. Um, and I think to the, I mean, if I were to say learn about our world, I have a whole set of books I could recommend if, if people want to learn about it. But the other side of it is uh, that, that that meeting in the middle is going to be facilitated by folks from a traditional BYU, bat, BYU MBA background. Um, BYU is like an hour away from me, by the way. A traditional MBA background. Um, there is a need for, you know, creative financial models on how to do this. There is a need for people who are going to be able to take their R skills and figure out who the ideal clients are for somebody producing stuff like what I'm producing. Um, whatever aspect you may be interested in about business, there is a need. Um, and so I would say it's it's more about finding the right teams, finding the right businesses that you do want to be involved in, um, or pushing wherever you may be towards more sustainable models of operating. Um, I, I, I'm I'm not sure the mechanics of business, you know, the, the production and the marketing and the logistics and all this stuff. I'm not sure that is ever going to go away when people talk about, oh, we need to transform how we do business. It's, it's about can we produce, package, ship, consume, dispose, in ways that are circular, right? In ways that are actually beneficial to the earth. And so those skill sets are all still applicable. It's just about shifting mindset and, and making sure that our actions actually have the intended consequences that we're looking for. Fantastic. Fantastic. So um, I guess I just wanted to kind of give you the platform now um, in terms of saying anything you wanted to say um, that you want to tell the world that your business might need right now. Um, just given the audience this is going out to, feel free to add in anything that you believe would be beneficial to you, yourself, the world, what have you. Great. Well, I mean, if, if there's one message I'm trying to get out to the world, it's that we need to stop looking for ways to be less bad and look for ways to actually be good. Um, there, the dominant narrative of minimizing our footprint as opposed to the, the narrative of, hey, we can actually be good for the earth as human beings is, is the primary message that I want to put out, that we, we are not inherently bad for the planet just by virtue of being human, and that we can take a position where our actions are beneficial. And not just that our actions are, but that the way we produce can be beneficial. And that's something that a lot of people don't either don't believe or have never heard before. Um, and it, and it's important to understand if you, if you take a look at, for instance, the the aquaculture that we'll be doing uh, as as part of our business, we're going to be selling shrimp. Uh, 
probably um, between 18 to 30 months from now. And this shrimp, through the processes of growing this shrimp, grows mangrove forests on desert coasts. Um, and we don't have time to go into all the benefits that mangroves provide, but they're massive. And it's not because we're making a profit, and so you know a certain percentage of our proceeds goes toward mangroves, right? It's not that model where, oh, we make money in a destructive way, but we give some of our money away to to help you know reduce the footprint. It's that mangrove afforestation and mangrove agroforestry are key components of our operations and actually is one of the main sources of our competitive advantage against our competitors. But what that means is that the more shrimp we sell, the better it is for the earth. And the more of our shrimp that people eat, the better it will be for the earth. Um, and that's that's a, a mind-blowing thing to me. Um, and I think to a lot of other people as well, the idea that that there is the possibility of virtuous consumption where we can you know, eat something and it's actually having a positive impact, right? And and that's that's what we're trying to produce and that's what we're going after. Now, what what we need is we are in we need some catalytic capital. Um, we do have our permits in Mexico, which has taken us eight months to get. We do have a land base for our first site, um, so we are nearly at a point where we actually need to go out and raise the money to build our first system. We're, we're just a couple weeks from that. So we will be funding, fundraising actively um, starting the end of March. So we do need funding. We also need, we also need the right people on our team. We need a COO, we need a CFO, we need a CMO. Um, and, and I'm very much aware of how important an early team is. And I've got, I've got three partners who are 70 years plus old. I've got three septuagenarian partners um, who have been working on this vision for a number of decades. And uh, the timing is right now, I believe. And But it also means that they've got a a limited timeline on how, A, both what their energy is and B, what their timeline is on being able to build this business. So I'm looking for folks to add to our team and looking for funding in the near term. All right. So how, how do people reach out to you? If they hear this message, where should they go in order to get in touch with you about those things? It, um, they can write me at nspackman at regenerativeresources.co. Um, or if they go to regenerativeresources.co and scroll down to the bottom, there's a contact us down there where you can, you can send an email and we'll all get it. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Neil, for coming on and speaking with us. I look forward to future conversations, and I know I'm going to be seeing your name and Regenerative Resources Co. Uh, pop up all over the place. Thank you much, Katie. Thank you, PJ. Learn more about the topics discussed in today's episode by visiting regenerativeresources.co. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, October 30th. We'll be speaking with Trista Bridges, co-founder of Read the Air.
For the complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at bard.edu slash MBA.